The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. seems most likely is that people north of the Roman world are taking Roman brass coins and they are melting down these little things stamped with images of the emperor and they are turning them into these big brash in your face massive pieces of jewellery which I think is a pretty loud way of telling people what you think of their coins and kind of reinventing that metal. That was Julia Farley describing an artefact at the British Museum's Major New Celts exhibition. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of September 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week's episode, in a change from what we advertised last time, is coming to you from the British Museum in London. The museum's major autumn exhibition, entitled Celts, Art and Identity, opens today, Thursday the 24th of September. Organised in partnership with National Museum Scotland, this exhibition charts 2,500 years of Celtic identity and influences, and contains some of Europe's most spectacular Celtic artefacts. A few days before the exhibition opened, I was lucky enough to have a sneak preview of some of the items on show, accompanied by co-curator Julia Farley. Julia picked out some of her favourite exhibits to show me, and explained how they connected to the long and complex history of the Celts. Just before we begin, we have a short advertisement break. Hello, this is Neil Oliver, presenter of Coast and A History of Scotland, introducing my new novel, Master of Shadows. 
Set in the 15th century, this is an action-packed epic following the adventures of little-known historical figure John Grant from the lawless borders of Scotland to the crumbling majesty of besieged Constantinople where he made his name. Master of Shadows is out 10th September in hardback, ebook and audiobook read by me, Neil Oliver. Find it at your local bookshop. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And now it's over to the British Museum. All right, so, um, Judy, if I could just ask you first of all, and this is probably the thousand million dollar question, <laughs> how exactly do we define what a Celt is? Well, Celts is a fabulous and quite tricky word because it is something that has changed its meaning several times over the last two and a half thousand years, uh, which is normal because, of course, words change what they mean. Um, it doesn't mean to say that any of those meanings are wrong or are less valid. So when the word is first recorded, it's recorded as Keltoi by the ancient Greeks, by historians like Hecateus and Herodotus, um, writing from around about 500 BC. Uh, it's possible the word had been in use longer than that, but this is the first time we have it recorded. And they are talking about um, tribes called Keltoi um, living to the west of Greece, um, north of the Alps. And when you look cumulatively at all the different references by the classical authors, we're looking at quite a broad sway of continental Europe. And they talk also about kind of marauding invaders going down as far to the south as Turkey, or what's now Turkey. And, and they talk about these people kind of raiding the classical world, because that's very much the kind of interaction that they're sort of seeing it from. We don't actually at that time, interestingly, see the word Celts being applied to Britain or Ireland. Mm. That association comes much later. So after the Greeks and Romans stop using this word, for a period of maybe about a thousand years, it's not being used at all. Nobody is calling themselves Celt, which isn't to say that we're not getting any kind of continuities in things like art and language over this period. Of course we are, but the word itself isn't in use. Then something very interesting happens in the middle of the 1400s, and that is the invention of the printing press. The reason why that is so important is because this kind of lost word, Celts, is rediscovered in the classical texts that can now be printed and disseminated much more widely. And things like the works of Caesar, his Bella Gallico, he talks about fighting um, Celtic tribes in Gaul, and it gets reprinted. Lots of people can read it. 
And this is also the time when we're seeing the rise of nation states in Europe and people are looking for ways to tell their own local and national histories. So this word is like gold dust, right? Because we have so few ways of referring to the pre-Roman past of Europe. It's really scant. It's prehistoric. People aren't writing down their own accounts. And so we have to see it through that lens of the classical world. People start using the word Celts to refer, once again, to quite a broad brush, everything pre-Roman in Western Europe, suddenly it's Celtic. And in 1582 is actually the first um, reference to Celts in Ireland and Scotland by a man called George Buchanan. And it's later, I think the really, really key thing is when the name gets applied to languages. So in the early 1700s, scholars, including a Welshman called Edward Lloyd, are studying the languages, extant living languages, of places like Cornwall, Wales, Brittany, Ireland, Scotland um, and the Isle of Man. And they realised that there were connections between them. And they wanted to give that language family that had been recognised a name. Because they realised that the connections were pre-Roman and because they're in Western Europe, of course, they chose the name Celtic. And that magical moment in the early 1700s is when the word Celtic came to resonate, not just as a descriptor of prehistoric peoples, but as a descriptor of those really distinctive languages, cultures and traditions of what we now think of as the Celtic nations. And from there, it went on to become um, a very emotive and sometimes very political term to stand for um, allowing those regions to articulate their difference from the English and the French. And that's how it's come to have the meaning that it holds today. Back in the ancient times, would any people have said or thought of themselves as being Celts? So interestingly, although I said the ancient Greeks first recorded the word, the word doesn't seem to come from Greek originally. So there's a suggestion that they borrowed it perhaps from some of the peoples they were describing. Uh, and I am fairly certain that there will have been some peoples over that kind of, you know, 500 years or so that we're looking at from 500 BC um, to when Rome starts kind of expanding further north. There will have been some peoples who did call themselves Celts. The tricky thing for us as historians and archaeologists is to think about what that word really meant and what resonance it carried for those people in the past because there is a tendency to use it very very broadly um, as indeed many of the classical authors did and I think that's problematic because archaeologically when we look at these groups we see that actually there's lots of differences between them so they're buried they're dead in different ways they lived in different kind of houses um, and we know that although they spoke related languages they're not necessarily mutually intelligible and um, the way they dress is very different lots of things so if you took people from two sides of that sort of spectrum and put them together they'd probably see the differences between them first and only think about the similarities second so Whilst I think there were some people calling themselves Celts, I don't think this was a really large-scale, um, larger term that people used to refer to something kind of pan-tribal. And I think that we need to remember that these peoples are actually very diverse. And even if we give them all one name today, we have to also recognise that though there are similarities between them, there are huge differences as well. And they almost certainly didn't conceive of themselves in the past as being a single people. And so it must have been quite a challenge for you in the exhibition to decide what you were going to consider to be Celtic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, 
this show has taken a long time to, to come together. And we'll see as we move through, the exhibition has different chronological kind of areas. So we have an introductory section where people can orientate themselves chronologically and geographically to where they are and to the big story that we're telling, which starts 500 BC and then runs right through to the present. As we move into the Iron Age, we're looking at that really the classical author's definition of Celts, I suppose. So we're telling a pan-European story and we're looking at all of those connections and differences. As we move into the Roman period um, and from there into the early medieval period and finally the Celtic revival, we start to narrow down much more onto Britain and Ireland because really from the Roman period onwards, it becomes a story of how those distinctive identities emerged at the edges of the Roman world in northern and western Britain and in Ireland um, and how it was that they came to need and want, a special word to describe those, um, which of course became Celtic. So we're here now in front of our first object, which is two very, very impressive looking um, flagons, which, as I think I said said before we started, they, to me they look fairly modern, but obviously they're, they're not at all. So could you tell, me, tell us a bit more about what these objects are? Absolutely. So these are the Basyut flagons, and I think they are absolutely incredible. They are a pair of wine jugs, and they were made in northern France, um, or certainly were discovered in northern France, and were certainly made for that kind of aesthetic, around about 450 BC. Um, and I'll just describe them a little bit for you. So they're narrow at the base, and they have been hammered out of a single sheet of copper. They then kind of widen out to the central section where we see a handle start to flare up um, and they have a narrower rim which leads to a a pouring spout, have a little stopper in the top. Coming up the handle was a large dog whose body forms um, the handle part of the the handle um, and who's then peeking over the top with little ears and its fangs bared and on either side of the lid around the rim are two little cubs and they are sneaking up on at the very very tip um, of the pouring spout a teeny tiny little bird perhaps a duck and it looks like it's swimming along quite oblivious to the dogs and because they're made for pouring wine there's a little gap underneath the body of the duck and so when you poured wine out of these it would have seemed like that duck was bobbing along on a little river of wine so you can see that they're really quite astonishing objects And they're all the more astonishing to me because they are the start of something very exciting. So, around about this time um, is roughly when things like the Parthenon marbles being erected down in Athens. And in classical art, we're starting to see an increasing trend towards a naturalistic aesthetic, a way of representing the world and the human body, which is whilst, you know, looking at certain kind of idealised proportions um, is very much about creating natural realism or the sense of that. And these people north of the Alps at the same time they have contact with that world and they're definitely aware of it. So we know that being imported north of the Alps into France um, are objects like Etruscan flagons. And we've put one of those on display next to the flagon um, or the Basiot's flagons here in the show. And if you look at the base of the handle of this Etruscan flagon, the kind of imports that the people who made the Celtic versions would have been familiar with, at the base there's a grinning gorgon um, kind of sticking her tongue out and going rah. But it looks, again, it's quite naturalistic. It's, um, it's simplified but it's obviously a depiction of a person or a mythical creature 
at the base of the handles of the basiot flagons, so the bottom of the body of the dogs which are peeking over the top, um, we see something slightly different. They've taken that idea of having a human face at the base, but they've really made it their own. And they've broken that face down into just a few really simple lines, but which nevertheless capture the essence of two eyebrows, swirling hair, a drooping moustache which hangs down over this slightly elongated mouth, a nose and two big staring eyes which are marked by little pieces of coral that would have been bright red when these were new. I actually think they would have been quite garish when they were new. Um, now they look quite uh, sort of muted and very tasteful. Um, they're dark green and all of the copper inlays have faded to a soft pink. Um, but when they were brand new, they would have been this really bright golden bronze colour and all of those inlays would have been bright red. So they certainly would have made a statement um, if you brought them out um, to the table at your feast. And what this is showing is the very, very beginnings of an art style that we now call Celtic art. wasn't given that name at the time. Um, it's a name that's been applied by modern scholars and archaeologists. And it's that idea of taking these um, natural forms, plants, animals, people, and reducing them to their essence, rendering them in just a handful of very, very simple, clean, swirling lines. And that kind of deliberately ambiguous swirling art by about 300 BC is shared across a really, really broad swathe of Europe, including Britain and Ireland. And it's this art which is one of the clearest shared traits that we see um, between all those different peoples that the classical authors are calling Celts. There's lots of differences in their societies as well but this is something that does unite them um, and they're making their own local versions. We no longer think of this as a big wave of expansion of migrating marauding warriors but it seems that some people are travelling and ideas are travelling with them and techniques and technologies um, and an artistic repertoire and an idea about representing the natural world in this way. So whilst classical realism is flourishing in the Mediterranean, here north of the Alps, there is a very great and I think neglected northern European artistic tradition emerging, um, which is some of the first and truly incredible abstract art. Yeah, it's interesting because in that period, I guess people would, would think the Greeks and Romans, you know, were far above traditionally what you might call the Celts in their art mm. styles. But actually, when you see that Etruscan version next to the Celtic one, the Celtic one, is, to my mind, is far superior, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm obviously horribly biased um, in what I've chosen to, um, to study and to do. But I absolutely agree that these objects are incredible. And it shows that these people north of the Alps are not in some kind of cultural backwater where they're just sort of feeding on the classical world and making kind of poor copies. Not at all. When you see them putting their own spin, their own little riff on these classical objects, they're actually making them to a standard I think, um, that far excels the originals. And it shows how incredibly skilled these people were. We did uh, focus groups in advance of the exhibition and we talked to people about what they would expect to see in an exhibition on the Celts and what they thought of when they heard the term Celts. We got all kinds of answers, but a very common one was, um, oh yeah, they just uh, they lived in mud huts, didn't they? And they went naked into battle all like wearing blue paint. And there is some kind of tiny element of truth in that, but actually... Really, for me, that's the opposite of what I think of when I think of the, the culture and society of these people. Because when you look at incredible objects like these, 
they were made by somebody who knew exactly what they were doing, somebody who was familiar with a really vast range of art styles and who knew how to put their own unique local twist on them as well. And I think actually, to me, being able to render something like a human face in the stylized way in just a few lines and yet to bring it to life, to give it that animation, that reality that really, you know, you feel like they're almost little characters staring out the bottom of these. I think that is a greater skill than totally realistic art. So we're now at an object which I do recognise, and that's partly because we've used some of these images on our cover a few times in the past. And I think that's partly because they are you know, amazing images and also a fairly rare example of the Celts actually using or Celtic illustration of human faces. So um, could you tell us a bit more about what this object is? Yes, I can. This is the Gundestrup cauldron. And as you sort of hint at, it's a completely iconic piece. I think it's probably the most written about piece of prehistoric or any prehistoric find from Europe. And so it's a very large silver cauldron. It's about 70 centimetres wide. Um, it was found dismantled in a bog in Denmark in the 1800s. And it had been disassembled into its component parts. So here we see it reassembled, but you can get a sense of how it was constructed. So there's a curving silver base and then around that, around the top, forming the upper band of the cauldron, are pairs of silver plates, one facing inwards and one facing outwards at each point so that there are scenes on the inside and also faces on the outside. So if you were coming to this object in the past, um, it's obviously from the incredibly ornate detail, which I'll describe in more detail in a moment. Um, it's obviously a very special, very precious object. It was probably reserved for important ceremonies and it might have been used for either filling with um, even water for use in a kind of sacred ceremony because of course that way you can still see the internal designs um, or possibly for serving an alcoholic drink like wine. And... But most people probably would only have been permitted to view it from a distance. And if you view it from a distance, and as you walk down the gallery towards it, it kind of recreates this, what you see is staring out from you, or staring out at you, um, a row of kind of forbidding faces of these mysterious characters um, who would once have had glass insets for their eyes, and they have fabulous hairstyles and beards. And we think that these are, um, now seven, once eight, depictions of gods or goddesses. And Many of them have their arms raised up and you can see them doing various things, sometimes superhuman feats. There's one um, here in front of us who is holding up two tiny human figures. Another one further around the cauldron is holding up a deer in each hand, suggesting that these are um, sort of superhuman or immortal people or gods and goddesses. And um, There's one um, I really like, which is just on our left at the moment, and this is a goddess having her hair braided by a tiny human figure. On the inside, the panels which you would only have been able to see if you were permitted to come really quite up close to the cauldron, as we happily are today, they show much sort of richer and more complex scenes, which seem to be illustrations of stories, myths and legends perhaps. So um, the one we're looking at here has an antlered man or god sitting cross-legged on the ground. In one hand, he's holding a ram-horned serpent, and in the other hand, he's holding aloft a torque similar to one that he's actually wearing, a kind of neck ring, which to classical authors at least symbolised the Celts and that kind of Celtic identity. What's really incredible for me about this object is, well, there are two things. The first is that 
we so rarely see depictions of people in Celtic art because Celtic art is this abstract, shape-shifting designs which are reduced to a few simple lines and elements. We don't often get to see people wearing and using things. We don't really get deeper hints of kind of myths and legends and stories. I mean, to the right of the, the antlered god who's sitting cross-legged on the ground, he's surrounded by animals and there's a tiny man riding what seems to be a fish. You know, and that kind of incredible richness that really suggests to me that someone looking at this at the time it was made would know the kind of stories that this symbolised in the same way that many of us today, if we saw a very simple, even a child's drawing picture um, of a boat with two animals walking towards it, we would immediately think of the story of Noah's Ark and a very, very simple visual trope and conjure up a much more complicated story. And I think that many of these images inside the cauldron would have been the same and that representing them and making them available to people like this is a way to symbolise and maybe induct people into those stories and legends. So it's great to see people using and wearing these objects that we associate with the Celts, torques and carnesses, these fabulous war horns, shields and helmets with strange animals on the crests. But what's perhaps even more exciting um, is that although it shows people wearing and using objects from Western Europe, it probably wasn't actually made in Celtic Europe. It was from the style of the silversmithing, we think, probably made um, in southeastern Europe down in the Balkans. And some of the imagery, such as the cross-legged pose of that antlered god, and some of the strange animals off to his right, which perhaps seem to represent elephants, although they look kind of spotted, um, suggest contacts from as far as field as Asia. So these images of people using objects from Western Europe are scattered over this incredibly actually cosmopolitan object and I think that that reminds us that no matter how much we love to go back and put history into little neat boxes labelled things like Celts, Greeks, actually you can't do that with the past because just as people's lives are complicated today and people move around and they have family in one place but they live in another place and maybe they've travelled even further afield than that, the same would have been true in the past and this one single object embodies a very much connected Europe and reminds us that we shouldn't just be looking to give simple labels like Celts and um, we should be thinking about what people's lives were actually like and the very, very wide connections they obviously had. We're now at our third object, which is an armlet. It's brown in colour. It's very nice patterns on it. I don't know a huge amount more about it, but I'm sure you can tell us. What, so what is this? Uh, this is, well, the technical archaeological name for a piece of jewellery like this is a massive armlet. And I think that that really kind of sums it up. So we're moving around the exhibition and time is moving on. The Romans have now arrived. They've spread um, north of the Alps into Gaul and into southern Britain. And so people's lives are changing because of contact. And with the Roman world, even those um, who lie outside it. And north of Hadrian's Wall, up in northeast Scotland, um, people who were very much aware of the Romans at this time, but equally um, very much not part of that Roman orbit, they start making a particular kind of really brash, massive jewellery. And archaeologists actually call this the massive metalwork tradition, uh, which I think is rather lovely and wonderful. And this particular armlet that I've chosen to talk to you about is from Ockenbardi in Scotland. And it has, um, one of my um, co-curators, Rosie, says she hates looking at it because she feels like it's covered with little eyes that are staring at her. And so the decoration is, in terms of very simple lines, but there are these little 
pairs of lips or eyes that seem to kind of stare out at you from different parts of it. It's quite sort of enigmatic looking object. It weighs about a kilo and a half, and that's quite normal for these kinds of things. And the diameter of it is such that you would have to go to the gym a lot more than I do in order to keep one of these up on your arm. So wearing something like this is definitely a way to emphasise a kind of large muscular build. And we think for that reason they were probably worn by men, um, although there are um, slightly smaller items of jewellery in this tradition um, which were probably worn by women as well, as women aren't excluded from it at all. And... What I love about these is that quite often when we've done metal analysis on the composition, these are made of brass. That's weird because brass is really a Roman metal at this time um, because you need to have zinc to put into the alloy and people aren't really doing that in the Iron Age. And what seems most likely is that people north of the Roman world are taking Roman brass coins and they are melting down these little things stamped with images of the emperor and they are turning them into these big brash in your face massive pieces of jewellery which I think is a pretty loud way of telling people um, what you think of their coins and kind of reinventing that metal you know changing it completely um, into another form that's more appropriate for you. Because at this stage in the show, what we're really exploring is the way that these regions outside the Roman world, they're not at all trapped on a kind of fringe where nothing is happening. Things are changing here, just as they're changing everywhere else in Europe. But they are responding to the Roman world in a very, very different way and developing their own distinctive identities. And how much of our modern conceptions or even misconceptions of the Celts come from the Roman writers, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the kind of stereotypes and tropes come from uh, Greek and Roman writers who talk about things like um, the Celts loving to get drunk and the Celts kind of swaggering around and casually challenging each other to mortal combat at the dinner table, more or less. And those are things which it's quite hard to sort of get rid of. But you just have to remember that there probably is some little grain of truth in these stereotypes, like there often is, but that that's very much a description from outside. And we're also conflating lots of different sources. So the Romans would never have referred to the people who made these armlets, for example, as Celts. The Romans never used that word when they were referring to Britain and Ireland. It's likely that later they might have used the word Picti to describe the people who lived um, in this region of Scotland, though again it has the same problem that we don't know whether the people in that area would all have used it themselves, whether they thought of themselves as a single group. So there's a lot of kind of slippage, I guess, in our terminology, but certainly the fact that we're largely dealing with people who are not writing down their own stories does mean that we get a very biased view. So we're now standing in front of a, well, a stone that's probably a good metre and a half tall, and it's got a series of inscriptions on it, which appear to be in certainly more than one language. So, so what's the significance of this object? Yeah, so as we're moving around the show, the Roman armies have, uh, have now departed. I can imagine that we are in Wales, post-Roman Wales. And this uh, stone is a memorial stone, and it's inscribed with a name, Macutrinus Salicidinus. And that name is inscribed in two different alphabets. So down the middle of the stone, it's inscribed in Roman letters that we're uh, much more familiar with today, and so you can probably start to make out some of that. 
if you look down the right-hand side on the corner, there are other little carvings, just um, what seem to be quite straightforward lines, different lengths and angles carved into the edge of the stone. And that's actually another alphabet called Ogham. And it's inscription of the same name. Um, so this is probably a stone memorialising Macutrinus, and that's why it's got his name on it. And the fact that it has those Ogham inscriptions on the side... Uh, suggests that it was probably commissioned by a speaker of early Irish or early Welsh, because Ogham is an alphabet that is most often used to record inscriptions in those languages. And actually it remained in use for a very, very long time um, in Wales and parts of Ireland. So this is again flagging up what we're starting to see in these regions, in this case Wales, but also Ireland, Scotland, are local traditions, and in this case of inscription, but also local languages, which set them apart maybe from, at this time we have Anglo-Saxons um, in England, um, living in a very, very different world. And they're worlds which are connected. There's not, you know, a big kind of hard and fast divide between them. And the very fact that you can have a Latin inscription and an Ogham inscription on the same stone, which is not at all uncommon in Wales, uh, I think think shows that there is this um, continued kind of ripple effect coming out from the uh, the Roman world and it's still affecting and influencing communities here in Wales long after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But equally, they're mixing that with their own local traditions in the same way that in northeastern Scotland, people start at this around this time. And I should say that this stone is from around about AD 500 to 550. So it's post-Roman, but not sort of a million miles away from that world. And up in northeastern Scotland from around the same time, they start inscribing what we now call Pictish symbol stones, which have far harder to read symbols and designs, which although not an alphabet, we think might represent, for example, the names of families so those could be memorial stones too. We generally tend to think of the Celts as not, as not having written much, but are there any examples of this, of this stage of them actually leaving written records of their activities? Yeah, I mean, so again, these aren't people who would have called themselves Celts, um, but we do start to have written histories from... Um, we don't have sources from... Britain really at this time but we are starting you know soon we're going to have chroniclers like Bede and things talking about these kind of regions we don't have um, sources from this period from Ireland Scotland and Wales really but it's not long before we are going to start having written sources and some of the sort of probably the descendants of the kind of families who will be putting up these sort of memorial stones. Something that happens over the following kind of few hundreds of years is that one way that they start memorialising and symbolising their importance is by commissioning scribes to write manuscripts. And we don't have any that are quite as old as this stone, but perhaps next we might look at one of our slightly later ones. Yeah. We're now standing next to uh, an amazing looking book, which to my mind reminds me of something like the Book of Kells. And I don't know if that is a relevant comparison or not, but certainly looks very impressive and very old as well. So um, can you tell us a bit more about what this is? Absolutely. And I think your comparison with the Book of Kells is very apt. Um, this is from the same tradition. It's the St. Chad Gospels, which have been loaned to us by Litchfield Cathedral. And if you have a look, so we've opened it um, to what we call the carpet page, which is a cross or the shape of a cross completely filled with and surrounded by fabulous interlaced beasts. And on the right side is the opening to the Gospel of Luke with these fabulous illuminated letters again covered in decorations and my favorite um, piece of the decoration snaking around 
the cue which starts the the Gospel of Luke in Latin, of course, is this beast, and he's kind of big and square because he forms the whole border, but at the top you have his little face leaning back over his shoulder and biting his tail, and at the very, very back you have his back legs and his little claws sticking out. Um, But in his belly are 24 birds, these fabulous little interlaced um, bird designs suggesting that maybe he's eaten them all, I like to think. And that sort of playful imagery is quite common in manuscripts of this kind. But when you look just at the incredible intricacy of the designs and think that this book was probably painted in the AD 700s by monks um, who would have been working without the benefit of artificial light, apart from kind of candles and lamps, and without even proper pens. They're using quills and they're making all of their own ink and they don't have magnification. The idea that someone can produce imagery this intricate, I think, is absolutely wonderful. This is the stage where we start, well, it may have even happened earlier, starting mm-hmm. seeing the connections between the Celtic and the Christian traditions, which I think for many people will be the most visible sign of the Celts is that great kind of Celtic cross. So, so is this around the time that's starting to happen? Yeah, one of the distinctive traditions, which we've kind of been hinting at, um, emerging in Wales, Scotland, Ireland, um, and those regions sort of at the edges of the Roman Empire, sort of hundreds of years ago, um, or previous to, to the manuscript, is that people start converting to Christianity actually earlier than the rest of Britain, so from the AD 400s. There had been Christian communities in Roman Britain, um, but after the Roman kind of government of Britain ends from around AD 410, that doesn't really kind of stick in England. And we have at this time pagan Anglo-Saxon kingdoms then um, filling that gap. Whereas to the north and west in Ireland, communities are converting to Christianity and they develop their own local forms of Christian worship and practice. And these fabulous illuminated gospel books are part of that. And this is where that artistic tradition of these kind of shape-shifting designs touches hands, as you say, with that Christian world and the new traditions and new teachings coming in. Because this is very much not um, again, an isolated fringe. They're well connected to the Christendoms of the Mediterranean and other parts of Europe, but they are having still their own unique kind of twists put on it. One of the interesting things about the art um, in this, and when we start looking at the book, is that it's actually quite different to the Iron Age art um, that we looked at before, which is exactly what we would expect. They're hundreds and hundreds of years apart. And one thing that's been incorporated is interlace. And I think that for a lot of people, interlace is this quintessentially Celtic thing. And you see it on Celtic crosses, you see it on these wonderful illuminated manuscripts. But interestingly, um, it's not originally Celtic. It doesn't originate in these regions that we now call the Celtic nations. It actually comes into their art through the Anglo-Saxon world. It's been a very, very widely used motif um, for hundreds of years, and probably even longer than that. It's very basic, it's quite a sort of simple idea. But it's through contact with the Anglo-Saxons and seeing some of their fabulous work, um, like, for example, look at the Sutton Hoo belt buckles. That's, you know, Anglo-Saxon rather than Celtic, but it has these wonderful interlaced beasts. And it's those kinds of things which start to influence um, Celtic art as well, which isn't to say that Celtic art is just emulating at all. All traditions take on new influences and this is, you know, it's just how the world works. And again, they take it and kind of run with it and give it their own unique kind of local spin. And I don't think anybody could doubt, looking at this fabulous gospel, um, that the person who painted this was an absolute master of their craft. Okay, so we're here now a little little further away from the last book and we're now looking in another glass cabinet at another book that um, certainly looks old, but 
a hell of a lot newer or more recent than the last book. It's the Archaeologica Britannica. Um, and so what's the significance of this book? Yes, well, the first thing that you'll probably have noticed about it um, is that whilst the Litchfield Gospels, which we've just looked at, were all kind of painted and written out by hand, this book immediately looks newer because it has been printed on a printing press. It was printed in 1707, um, but the printing press is actually part of our story too. Um, So I'm going to go back a little bit before that, which is just to say as a reminder that all of the stuff we've been looking at really since that massive armlet would not have been called Celtic at the time it was made. The people who made and owned and wore those kind of objects or who you know, made the inscriptions or the illuminated gospel, they didn't call themselves Celts. So why is it that today we associate the word Celtic with those distinctive histories, customs and traditions of ancient Ireland, Scotland, Wales and the other Celtic nations? Well, it starts with the printing press. So in the middle of the 1400s, printing press has been invented and books previously had to be copied out by hand and if you think about that that is mind-blowing because it means that every single recorded word was written out by hand often by um, monks who were kind of copying these things out and scribes so commissioning a book was a huge deal every single copy of a book was incredibly precious but with the printing press it means that printed word can become much more widely available and so people start going into these libraries and thinking well brilliant you know what can we release to the world and the classical texts written by people like caesar people like herodotus are rediscovered and reprinted and they're translated and they reach a much much wider audience than they ever have before and of course recorded in here um, amongst many other things is their classical use of the word Celts and so suddenly people in the emerging nation states of Western Europe have a name that they can use to articulate their ancient pre-Roman past and that's kind of like gold dust really because these words are really few and far between and they're very precious so people catch on to this word Celts and it becomes used very widely and very broadly as a kind of shorthand for all of the pre-Roman peoples of Western Europe. And what that means is that when Edward Lloyd um, is writing his Archaeologia Britannica and publishing it in 1707, what he's actually doing here, it was the first edition of what was going to be a much longer work, but um, was never completed because sadly he died. He's studying the languages of the regions that today we call the Celtic nations. So Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, Brittany and the Isle of Man. And he's realised there are connections between those languages. There's a group of scholars working at this time who start to make that realisation. They're not the same language, they're not mutually intelligible languages, but they are similar and they share certain linguistic kind of tropes in common. And he's looking for a name to give this family of languages that he's realised are related. And he realises that the connections are pre-Roman, that these languages haven't been influenced by Latin and by Germanic languages in the same way that the English has. And so because it's pre-Roman and it's in Western Europe, what's he going to call it? Of course he's going to call it Celtic. And that is how this word gets attached to those regions that we associate it with most clearly today, certainly in Britain and Ireland. And it's from there that this word takes on that new meaning um, and becomes a very political and a very emotive term which people are able to, to catch on to. And it becomes a way for people to articulate their difference to the English or to the French in Brittany. And because of that, it's hugely powerful um, and becomes something which has really resonated right down through to the present. 
I mean, clearly this, this remains a fairly big deal in, mm. in Britain and, and I guess in Brittany, but do other parts of Europe that would have been traditionally Celtic, do they also have this Celtic identity nowadays? It's much less of a contemporary identity in other places like France and Germany, with the exception of Brittany and France. And I was actually talking to you, uh, there was in 2012, there was an exhibition on the Celts in Stuttgart. And I was talking to the curator there, Thomas Hopper, and I was saying, you know, isn't this quite political, you know, for, for you guys too? But apparently not so much. Like in Germany, people see it very, very much as part of their ancient identity, um, but they don't so much tend to see it as part of their contemporary identities. And I really think it is um, the fact that it became a very powerful word that was used to articulate difference between the different parts of Britain and Ireland, that it's really caught on and become very popular here. And it is, I get quite cross sometimes with uh, archaeologists and academics who say that um, that use of the word Celtic is kind of false somehow or made up, because words do change their meaning. And the differences that Celtic is being used to label are really genuine. There really are richer, like, deep histories of difference in those kind of regions. And there are things that they share culturally, although, of course, um, they're also um, distinct as well. So I think Celtic can still be a very, very useful word to us. And we just have to remember that calling those nations Celtic is not to say that they are directly connected to the ancient Celts that people like Herodotus was writing about um, in Europe. Because I think that tends to give people an idea that we've had these kind of big waves of migrations and that these kind of Celtic peoples have then somehow kind of got stuck in this sort of Celtic fringe. And I think that's a, a kind of quite a sad idea, really, because that makes it sound like Celtic culture is something static, which doesn't have like a rich and complex and deep history. And of course it does. And that's very important for us to remember as well, that whilst we're labelling those regions Celtic, these cultures aren't something that have survived on a fringe. Actually, they're very, very well-connected, very, very cosmopolitan cultures, which, like everyone else, are constantly drawing on new influences. We're now at a, at a, big, a big glass case with quite a few interesting objects. There's a, an outfit, some kind of horn, a dragon, but the, the thing we're going to talk about is this really magnificent-looking sword with a really elaborate gold-looking handle and some other kind of metal, which I don't know <laughs> exactly what it is around the handle too so what's the significance of this uh well i might talk about um some other things in the case as well but i'll start with the the sword so this is the grand sword and, and it's very very large as you've said it wouldn't be very practical in battle um, but it was never made of battle it's actually part of the regalia associated with the welsh national eisteddfod so the other things which are in this case are some robes which although these are later examples were originally designed in the 1890s and the very fabulous herlas horn um, which is seated on its dragon stand with its rather fabulous lid here. And these are made to be worn and used in the rituals surrounding the opening ceremonies and other ceremonies in the National Welsh at Stethford, um, which is a celebration of Welsh language and culture, which was founded in the early 1860s and still happens every single year. And I wanted to finish on these because I think it shows how even invented traditions surrounding that idea of Celtic identity have come to be really important and remain very, very important, um, even down to today. 
I used to live in Cardiff and I went to the Eisteddfod while it was being held there. And it's a really, really magical occasion. And I wanted to read you this quote, uh, which is up on the wall here. So the Archdruid robes were actually designed in the 1890s and they were designed by a man called Hubert Herkimer. And uh, he said around this time, for an Archdruid to be wrongly dressed, that is too dreadful to contemplate. The Gorseth, with its chief, must above all be distinctive in its outer appearance as well as in its inner spiritual being. And the Gorseth is the Gorseth of the Bards, uh, which is the organisation which helps to run the Eisteddfod and make sure that it happens every year. And I think that's a really telling quote from Hubert Herkimer, which is just resonating with the fact that people are looking for ways to articulate these these traditions and these differences. And, and this is something, this is a huge and very, very, very ancient tradition of gatherings of like poetry in the Welsh language, which goes back way, way beyond the original foundation of the Eisteddfod itself as a national festival. Um, but it's become something which is a really important way to articulate what it means to be Welsh today and to celebrate that still living um, Welsh language. And some of the pieces of regalia, which were designed by Hubert Herkimer to be worn with the robe, which are on our case to the left, they're based on depictions of druids from the early 1800s. So he's drawing on depictions that were already nearly 100 years old of druids who were an ancient Iron Age priesthood. And going even back further than that, some of the objects they're depicted as wearing in this kind of slight sort of chronological scrunching and misunderstanding are actually what we now know to be Bronze Age vines, which are from thousands of years earlier. So there's this real kind of rich layering up of different historical periods, but it's created something which is absolutely new um, and absolutely sort of still resonant with this kind of, you know, depth of past that lies behind it. So, for example, the sword um, is used, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, in a ceremony representing peaceful intent, where it's unsheathed a little, words are spoken, and then it's sheathed again several times times. And that particular ritual is something that has evolved um, through the period of since the Gorset's founding in the 1860s. But nevertheless, the objects which they're using to, to do it kind of are drawing on earlier kind of imagery. So it's a really lovely example, I think, of invented traditions that still carry a real resonance today and have become a very, very important part of Celtic national identities. That was Julia Farley of the British Museum, guiding me through their new exhibition, Celts, Art and Identity, which is open now. You can find out more and book tickets at britishmuseum.org. Julia has also co-written a book about the exhibition, along with her fellow curator, Fraser Hunter. Entitled Celts, Art and Identity, it is available now, published by British Museum Press. And we'll also be continuing the Celtic theme in our November issue, with a piece from one of Britain's foremost ancient history experts. So do look out for that. Meanwhile, our October issue is still on sale. In this month's edition, there are articles on the first emperors of Rome, the Battle of Agincourt, Alan Turing, the Somme, and interwar Europe, among other things. You can get hold of our October issue in all good news agents and digitally. And once again for this month, we're continuing our service of providing audio versions of some of the articles. You can listen to these on our iPad and iPhone editions, and also online at historyextra.com forward slash October audio. Meanwhile, 
here's a reminder that our autumn history weekends are almost upon us. Our event in York begins tomorrow, the 25th of September, while our Malmesbury weekend takes place from the 15th to 18th of October. There are still tickets available to some of the talks, so if you'd like to come along, it's not too late. Visit historyweekend.com for more details and tickets. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time for more exciting history content. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>